Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. So welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Matt flying solo, at least for now. We may have Greg joining us shortly. And I'm actually uh, really excited today because I'm joined by Alistair Gibbons. Alistair is um, really kind of the main man behind ATG Vintage Watches, which was an eponymous website for uh, for Al and actually kind of a one of the bigger, I think, and most credible of the vintage watch forums in the late aughts and into the 2000 teens. I know I spent a lot of time there learning about vintage watches and Lamagna powered watches and Bremont watches and all kinds of stuff. And we've been wanting to have him on um, for a variety of reasons. And so today from the United Kingdom, we are joined by Al. Al, how are you? Good, thank you. It's nice to be here. Excellent. Well, on this particular podcast, we usually do a little bit of the um, kind of the lifestyle and beer and, and wine and cocktails and all that stuff. But I think today is going to be just watches. The last episode we recorded was almost entirely spirits. So we'll, we'll ping pong back and forth a bit. But right. let's start with, oh, don't worry about that at all. I can edit that out. And it adds character. It adds a little uh, texture to the sound. Yeah. But hey, let's start with the wrist check. What are you wearing today? Uh, I'm wearing the, uh, an Aquastar Deep Star Black Dial, um, which is the 2000, I'm just trying to work out where to put this, 2020, uh, reissue of the Aquastar on a, um, Erica's Originals, one of her Mirage, um, elastic MN bands. I don't know whether you know I this. I love one. those craps. Yeah, they're really... They're really good. I, I, I know them. I know Erica. I went over there a couple of years ago and tried. They make everything. They do make everything by hand. I tried making one. I thought this doesn't look that hard. Well, it was it was pretty hard. <laughs> it was pretty embarrassing. They were like, no, and just threw it away. So, yeah, no, I, I like them. They're really comfy. Yeah, I, I got turned on to those a few years ago. I think probably when a lot of people did. I think um, I think that was an OEM strap for one of the Tudor releases. I think back around 2016, and that put her on my radar. And I think now I probably have. Well, I just actually received two more last week, so I probably have about a half a dozen of those. Yeah, and they're they're fantastic. I think yours has the little detail. Does it have like the little Union Jack on it? Yeah, I've got the. Um, well, that's I. I, I the whole Instagram thing's strange. I did one. I, I try not to, oh, I don't know. I did a wrist roll last night on uh, Instagram while I was watching. Yeah, yesterday afternoon, there was the first, we got the European Football Championships here. And uh, I put the strap on. It's got, you know, the British flag. And it was our first England game in the football. And I just did a wrist roll. And, uh, you know, and I just tagged it, this watch and this strap. And it's had like 900 views. Now, I'm not you know, Hidinki or any of these 
guys who with their thousands and thousands of views. You know, I just do the odd thing, and it's, it's largely historical vintage stuff with my with my stuff. Um, but I've never I've never had more than sort of three hundred, and I don't know what happened. Just everyone decided they wanted to watch it. So yeah, so that's what happened yesterday. But the Aquastar is a very attractive watch. Yeah, it really is. Um, over here in the United States, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of heat on that watch. No pun intended, because of Jason Heaton, I guess. But um, they really, really seem like a great piece, very well executed. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a really reasonable size, right, for a dive chronograph. I mean, is what are the case dimensions on it? Yeah, no, I think it's. Um, I can measure it for you. I, I think it's. I tell you what, it is. Right, I've owned. I owned. I first I, I got married in one of these in 2001, right? So I was wearing okay. an original, um, and I think it cost me $200, and no one knew what it was. And uh, I didn't know that, you know, Jacques Cousteau wore them, all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was a really kind of crazy-looking watch. Yeah, so it's just a little bit bigger. It, it, what, what it is is it's a great re- faithful representation. I should put this down a bit. You can see a faithful representation of the original. I mean, it's like that, that it's just bigger because it's got a parallel auto movement in it, you know, and it's got a, it's got a dome crystal, but it's sapphire. So therefore it's slightly taller and all that kind of stuff, but they haven't done anything right. like put a date in it when it wasn't needed, but it's only, um, it's only like 40 across and it's, uh, and cause it's a bit longer to match the case dimensions. It's about 50 mil in, uh, from lug to lug. And depth is maybe 17, something like that. So it's not, for a dive watch, it's not huge. It's just the original watch, but done modern. The dial is exactly the same. The hands are exactly the same. The case style is the same. The case back has this great star uh, detail for unscrewing it instead of having notches. Can you see that? I can, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. There's a clamp. There's a reverse clamp of it, and it goes over the star, and you use the star to unscrew the back. It's cool. So it's, I mean, it's a cool thing. Um, and I really like the originals, but you know, it's small. It's the thing with a, a lot of the vintage chronos that I love them, but they're a bit small. Yeah, I imagine they wear a little bit precious, for lack of a better way to put it. And I think, you know, some of the older watches, um, you know, they're they're creeping up in value if they haven't already. So that's, I think, having a really cool kind of visually faithful representation and re-edition is a great idea. I think that's got to be the the secret sauce to Tudor in the Black Bay. Everybody, yeah, I think, loves that. Yeah, well, I like that watch. I mean, I remember seeing it when they, you know, they do this crazy thing at Basel, where the, when when they kind of show watches that they might do, and they call them the novelties. Yes, it's always very funny you know, seeing English used by people where English isn't their first language. Because if you look up novelty, yeah, you could use that, but we would never say novelty. Novelty means like plastic and throwaway. It doesn't mean good. And uh, I remember seeing the uh, the Black Bay watches and thinking, okay, they're going to win. But it did take them quite a while to sell. Yeah, I think it's a, a world beater design, but knowing, um, you know, it seems like the 58 is where they really took off, you know, just yeah. finally getting, because I, I had one of the, 
I had the first, the ETA driven um, Pelagos when they first came back to the United States. And I got right. that right away. And I, I really liked that watch, but I just found that it was just blocky, you know, very, you know, yeah, the flat spot. Up and down. Yeah. exactly. So when the Black Bay came out, I got one of the, uh, the blue ones thinking, okay, this is going to have maybe a little bit more of a visual kind of dimension to it because it's blue. Yeah. And it, again, it was a great watch, but just for me, just that one extra millimeter really didn't work well on my wrist. I mean, I'm a pretty skinny guy yeah, and yeah, that yeah. it's the depth that visually just kills it. But then just, you know, remove two millimeters in the form of yeah, the black. Bay mean to me yeah. I mean, to, yeah. in 2010, they had the Monte Carlo, they'd read on the Monte Carlo as well. And I, I was remember. like, wow, this looks great. And then I turned it on its side and it's just a massive flat piece of steel. And I just thought, you don't need, to, you don't need to do that. Take that off or put a detail in it, put some kind of interesting little, you know, chamfer or something to break that up because it just looks like a big piece of steel. So, yeah, no, I'm glad they've done that. They do look pretty cool, yeah. Yep, yep. Well, hey, speaking of kind of thick watch with slab sides, so for the wrist check on my end, I've got a watch that I came oh, yeah. to know yeah, uh, through through you and your website at ATG Vintage and the the Lamania forums in particular. So this yeah. is the the Tutima military chronograph. Yeah, I've never had one. Oh, really? Yeah, it's no. a it's a really satisfying watch. But to your point, and I don't know if you can see this, I'll actually take this off and hold this up to the camera for for those listening. Where we've got a pretty good high def video here that we uh, we use. But if you can kind of see this, this yeah, yeah, is yeah. there's some rounding on that both at the top and the bottom so you get a sense of like the mid case being only yeah, about yeah. one third of the height yeah, so it's not flat yeah yeah, yeah so it just it, flat steel it's just like why did they do it i don't know i don't i wonder sometimes seriously if they they it's good enough but it creates a greater desire for you know the the parent product or the sibling product you know over at the crown yeah I, I don't know if they're, if that's the deal or, you know, if that they, um, I mean, this is pure speculation, but I always wonder sometimes, for instance, like, let's say they, they develop that case and that architecture because they had an in-house chronograph coming and they, you know, they always knew that it needed to be big enough to house, you know, that chronograph yeah. or to yeah, house it, a it GMP module. Yeah. And so they just, you know, rather than give us a small one and then a bigger one later. They gave us a bigger one first and then a smaller one for the time only watches. Certainly everybody wants the, the black Bay 58 in a GMT or a chrono, but yeah. anyhow, it's a real nice well, watch. I mean, no crown guard sub design is a great design. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have one of the, um, uh, uh, Blanc <laughs> And that's, oh, yeah. you know, that's oh, yeah. that same kind of, I mean, it's different, but same. It's, you know, big crown, no, no guards. Yeah. But that's dog. like, that's like aesthetically, that's like a Bauhaus design. I mean, the Pelagos, that was the, was that, was that the, the TI version that the titanium one? Yeah. It's like really matte. And, and then you got that, the Bathyscape, which is also very accurate. It's like a Shin U1. It's got those hands like that. Yeah. Now, my, my brother's an architect. I don't know what you do for a living. My brother's an architect, and he utterly loves those watches because they're just, like, even if there's dirt on it, he doesn't, he, he's like, oh, but it's dirty. You know, he's, he's, he, it's the pure lines of it all. I really like the Bathscape. It's a really cool watch. 
Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it is, it's certainly one of my favorites. And that is part of the reason there's, there's so much negative space on that dial, you think it's not going to work. But when you get in and you see the dial detail, it's like, oh, no, wait, that the texture and that the way that um, that sunburst dial, that is yeah. the feature that you want to see. So you don't actually want a lot of clutter. Yeah, well, that's why it's a sunburst dial. That that's for things like that. It's like um, with technical watches, how they always design them. Because you're looking at layers, so you look in the background dial, like I mean, particularly for chronographs, but it works for everything else as well. With chronographs, they'd have like, um, you know, if it's a the background dial might be, you know, a lot of watches are black, um, uh, and then they'll have cream or white registers on a chronograph so that you can see them. But then what they'll have is the three hands on, say, if it's a tricompax chronograph, they'll all be different types of hands. And actually, the typeface of the numbers will often be different as well. And all what that does is keeps creating a different layer. So your brain can go, I just want to look at the minutes. And you see it straight away because you know the minute hand is curly. And it, it, it's like, uh, I mean, it's really over many, many years been very much thought about. I think um, one of the, uh, who was really not mundane? Somebody did it in like the 40s because they realized they were putting so much stuff on watches that it would be difficult to work out what you were looking at. And then they realized, well, if you put like a red hand here or a pointer on that one, then it would separate. And then they started doing it with everything. Yeah, I'm sure they've got that down to a science. And yeah, you, you have a good point. I mean, there's a lot of information that is <laughs> packed yeah. into a space that's basically an inch across. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, hey, let's get, you know, kind of continue to go through the main topic here, which is you. Uh, can you tell us what a little bit about your background? Like, how did you get into watches and what's how did you progress as a collector in your interest? Um, well, I don't know. I, 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 um, I always like watches. I think I think my first proper watch that I actually bought myself, I didn't really have anything when I was a kid. My dad had, remember my dad suddenly coming home with um from some business thing he'd been on and and suddenly he had like two casio calculator watches which in like 1976 was like the future right you know what i mean it was like oh, yeah. oh my god well as we know about those watches they last about three months before you smash them or the you rip the bracelet off or whatever so then i didn't really have a watch for for I didn't really think about watches. I think I had a swatch. I had like a black swatch for a long time. And then, uh, you know, I went to college, did, I uh, did uh, broadcast TV at college, uh, engineering. I can't believe I actually got through that because I'm not an engineer really. Um, and then, uh, I did a bit of work and then I was an editor and then I was working abroad a lot. I think I bought a Tag Heuer 2000 for my, I bought it for myself with my first kind of proper paycheck. Okay. And then I started reading about watches more and then learning more about them. And then I realized it was kind of a quartz watch and a nice case. It wasn't really, a, a you know, and I thought I was, you know, buying into the whole mechanical engineer world. And then a couple of years later, um, I was working on a job uh, in, I went out to Hong Kong. And uh, I was there about three three months working on this big commercial thing, and um, I'm on my own the whole time. And um, we used to get uh, uh, 
spending money in cash. Like sure. it would just be into your, you know, your expenses. But it was like Hong Kong, so it was in cash. We didn't give it an envelope. You just someone would just give you a lump of cash. Well, I didn't have anything to spend it on. And then I suddenly thought, ah, watches. And I kept trying to give them the money back. I was like, look, I don't need it. And they were like, no, 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 that, that's yours. Did a little all the stuff. I was young, 25. And uh, so I spent the whole three months sitting in this guy's shop trying to get a deal on an Amiga Speedmaster. Like every five or six days, I'd pop in, and he'd just go, and I'd sit down opposite him, and he'd pull out the auto, and he'd pull out the manual, and then he was trying to sell me a two-tone one that he obviously needed to get rid of. When, when I look back now, I was like, oh, yeah, he needed to get rid of that. And I think I ended up walking out with a, I had a an auto Speedmaster, and I think that was probably a Lemania one back in the day. Yeah. 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 Um, which, you know, was then discovered that they used these Lemanias. Um, and I had that for a while. Um, and I, I, again, with this, this traveling, I'd go and do these jobs and they just leave you on your own at night. Or, you know, if it was a weekend, I'd just be left to my own devices. And, you know, I used to work in Hamburg, I went Dusseldorf, did a bit in Paris. And I just started, you know, what are you going to do when you, you know, when you go away to a, a city on business and there's, you're on your own and, you know, um, so I go to markets and I started buying watches and I, I started, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of laying this money off really. Cause I, I, I had this whole paranoia about flying back to England with too much cash. I, I, you know, which that didn't mean anything. And then, um, I started buying watches and that was, so my first watch collection, I think was like two Speedmasters, a tag. I think I had a Hoyer. This is in the 95, something like that. I had okay. a Octavia. Um, uh, what else did I have? I had a Rolex Samarina 1680. Uh, did I have a GMT? Yeah, I think I had a GMT as well. And the reason why I can't remember these is because this was my first collection that ended up going to the tax man. Because okay. I did all this groovy flying around and like, you know, working on these commercials and being all kind of cool, the cool guy from London, without any understanding of someone is going to say, oh, by the way, you've been registered for tax in Germany, or because for some reason we never had those conversations, and I was young, didn't know any better. So anyway, I got a big tax bill. So there I went down to Bond Street in London, where all the really cool watch shops are, and put all these great watches down in front of this dealer, who's this guy is about, in his about 70, and he just went, and he just wrote down a number and gave it to me. <laughs> I went, really? And he was like, yeah, there's no market for second-hand watches like this. Wow. If no market in 95, 95, 6, that was. And I was like, well, you've got them in the window. And he goes, yeah, but it's a third. So I pay a third, third in tax and expenses and servicing and a third in profit. So I can only give you a third. So I walked out of there. Paid my tax man, and that was like one of those life lessons when you're quite young, where you think, "Not going to do that again." So yeah, that they were my first watches. I can imagine so, that being pretty devastating. I mean, it was, it was it was pretty devastating. Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, back to the swatch. <laughs> if you had <laughs> it that day, right? If you had a uh, a 1680 sub and an old GMT and. Yeah. You know, an old lawyer and a 
couple of speedmasters. Yeah, exactly. You would. Oh man. Yeah, I would. I would yeah. absolutely. I would cry. Well, and I was freelancing, and the, and the thing was, like, literally five minutes later, I got another job that paid that would have paid the tax bill anyway. So it, it was just young and stupid. But um, then I moved on to. Um, I was working for a big broadcaster, and um, I was in charge of their commercials, making sure they were going out okay. And they suddenly got big pipe internet. This was about '98 in the UK, and I discovered eBay, and I was like, "Wow, look at look at all these watches that nobody knows what they are." You know, they were like house clearance companies in Iowa going, just putting, you know, taking a picture of of you know, uh, you know, someone lives on the other side of the US was saying. Oh, your great 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 uncle has died, and and you you get his house, and it's like, well, I don't want to live in Iowa. I'm not from there, and so there are house clearance companies that you say, can you just click, sell it all for me? Estate sales, and they right. started putting stuff on eBay, and they would just take a photograph and say, it says Hoyer or Tavia on the dial. That's what it is, and there was a whole little world of guys like me who knew what they were, and was going great, and you know you'd be talking to a, some farmer out in Louisiana who's, yeah, I'm getting rid of this watch, belonging to my brother. And you'd have these actually quite long conversations via eBay about these watches. And, and you, you know, and I met loads of quite interesting characters. Um, and they were like, oh, you're from England? And, and so, yeah, so I just started, I thought, wow, I could get some really cool, a really cool collection here. And so I just... You know, no one was doing it because the UK didn't have full broadband then. That was like, I think, you know, full broadband in the US wasn't until, that was about 98, I think, or whatever. So, yeah, so, and then I, I paid a student to build a website for me. And, you know, my first collection of watches, I found a watchmaker just around the corner. He was very good. And so I, I think, well, I'll, I'll do like a little uh, collector site. So I do my first sort of 12 watches, which were like, uh, 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 Olek and Weiss, um, Early Bird, an original, uh, Hoya Pasadena, Amiga Speedmaster Straight Lug 65. Um, these are all watches that are, you know, they're real worth a serious amount of money now. Yeah, this is, these are big deal pieces now for sure. Yeah, Glycine Airman, uh, an original one with the little spike that came out through the dial that yep. holds it. Yeah, and all these kind of and things like those brick bracelets for Speedmasters that I can't remember the name of them. That they, they, all the all the NASA, all, all the astronauts. Uh, oh yes, I know, I know what you're talking about, but it's the name is yeah. escaping. As well. I bought like a box of them. You know, like used, you know, off eBay. You just you buy boxes of stuff sometimes. And I thought these are all really cool. And I photographed them really well because I kind of knew about cameras from college and all that stuff. And I put them online. And like three days later, everything was gone. And I, I didn't have anything else because I didn't, I wasn't a business. You know, I was working in TV and I was just kind of, and I'd spent like three months servicing them, like getting really cool straps. I was finding their original packaging and all kinds of stuff. This is before you came across me. This is like 2002. Okay. And what I realized was, I can't do this. I can't do it. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not the kind of guy at the time who was going to go and buy two hundred watches. You know, put like fifty, sixty grand into something um, because it was like a hobby. So I just kept doing that, 
and selling watches and making making a bit and buying more and making a bit. Um, and then I ended up being able to buy the collection that I wanted. But it happened really quickly. By like 2004, I had everything. All the cool vintage stuff, I had it. I had a No Crown Guards 5508 sub from a 62. I had... 1675 GMT, the first one from 1960. I had oh. Straight Look Speedmaster, 321 Speedmaster, uh, 1970 First Man on the Moon Speedmaster, Speedmaster Mark II Exotic, uh, Hoya Monaco Cal 15, Cal 12, um, 334, the manual one with the date. I mean, I was like, uh oh. And suddenly I was like a museum. You know, I'd gone from being like a guy who had a handful of watches. So I had like 20 of the most collectible watches. You know, I had a blank pan Roigville. Is it Roigville? Uh, Turnick Rayville. Uh, Turnick Rayville. Yeah, I had one of those. That had, wasn't signed on the dial. Um, yeah, I had one of those. That's a great case on that watch. Um, yeah, and I'm just sitting there and I was like, well, what? And I suddenly realized I was doing putting more into watches than I was into going to work. So I had to kind of like, I thought, yeah, I'm kind of ruined my career here. I've kind of gotten too much into, you know, I created a forum by then and I was like organizing, well, let's go for beers. There was a guy, um, I haven't spoken to him for ages. He works for Bramont now, Gary. Uh, oh, Agent Omega Gary. Yeah, yeah, Omega Gary, yeah. And he contacted me and was like, like a lot of people did, and they do, you'll, you'll recognize this now. Um, they've read a website that's told them all about a watch. So then, and then they speak to you and they go, yeah, but really? And you're like, yeah, but that's only what that guy knows. It's maybe not what you, re you know. And he was, he contacted me and he was like, I'm based in Bristol and, you know, I know about watches and this, that, and the other. And I was like, okay. And then uh, and I said, well, maybe we just go for a beer. And he was like, I live here. And he lived like three streets away from me. Right, so, so very close. Yeah, really close, right? So we went for a beer. And he went, He was asking me about uh, uh, Mark II Speedmasters. Now, I just customized some. I just had some sent away to the States where they PVD coated them. When I, when I turned them, like I was going to do with that watch that you've got. And I never got around to it. Um, so I turn up for a beer with him and he's about to tell me everything, you know, he really knows and he's never owned one. And then I'm about to show him a real one. I'm going to about to show him one that I've customized. And by the way, here's the Speedmaster book. Cause he was like, Oh yeah, there's only a few Speedmasters. And I was like, there's like 300. And you know, have yeah, you ever seen the Japanese Speedmaster book where you open it, it goes like that. It's about eight pages of Speedmasters. And I went, just open that book before you talk about the Speedmaster. And he was like, well, I think I've read all it. I was like, Gary, just look at it. And he just opened it and he just went, looked at me and he went, oh. And I'm like, yeah, there's hundreds of them. So that that was the beginning of where I got to, kind of not long after that was when you came across ATG Vintage Watches. Yeah, well, that was a really, um, you know, from my way of 
experiencing it, that was a really interesting, kind of a small niche, more knowledgeable community than some of the other big kind of more generalist websites, you know, and not to, not to knock any of these, but, you know, time zone and, and watch you seek and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of interesting information there, a lot of people, but the signal to noise ratio on some of these bigger places is, you know, it's not optimal. And I would find that, you know, in, uh, in that 2010 to 20, say 15 era, you know, for me, the places to be were ATG Vintage and and Dive Watch Connection. Yeah, just, you know, the the more knowledgeable people hung out there, and you know the not just the quality of the discourse, but frankly the the trustworthiness of the information, and then the um the sellers exchanges were very good. So this sort of brings me to the next thing. So I mean, the the website is is you know going and. The next thing, though, that I saw, and this has been a couple years kind of in the making, is this. And I'm holding up the Chasing Time book. Now, I've purchased probably a half a dozen of these and gifted them out to different people or or watch shops around here. Yeah. So I think I maybe sent you a picture a long time ago. I took one of these to want to buy a watch and and donated it to their collection. But um, for those who are not... Oh, go ahead. Say that again, Al. They talk to me, uh, the want to buy a watch. It's Ken. Is it who runs that? It is Ken. Yep. Okay, so back in the day, there was there were only four really good vintage dealers in the states, like real pros. There was one to buy a watch. It was Ken. Finer Times. Uh, I think that's still going. Zap Basher is that? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, cool vintage watches. And they just took amazing photographs of watches. Like they were like, I mean, I, I'd taken some good shots. These, these guys were taking amazing. And there was a little like homemade website of some guys I used to buy watches from and they were out in the Midwest somewhere. And it was a real like hokey site. You know, it had like a tiger at the bottom of the site with the, with the visitor count in the tiger's mouth. Do you know what I mean? It was like real yes. kind of homemade stuff. Um, but it's, yeah. It's beautiful and cheesy. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. Um, yeah, but you want to buy a watch, uh, yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. Very good people there. So what made you kind of, what was the inspiration for the book for somebody who's never seen the book or doesn't know about it? What would you tell somebody for like an elevator pitch? Why would, why would an enthusiast want to get a copy of this? Cause I, I personally think it's fantastic. I think every collector should have this, especially oh, if they're interested thanks. in vintage. Yeah. Well, I mean, what it is, is essentially, you know, your idea is you have a website and, and I only ever had sort of maybe 10 pages of watches, five watches on each. Well, each one of those setups of the watch was like a profile. So it would have, I would have 500 words written, including what I thought of it, the technical specs, uh, you know, service guarantee, all that kind of stuff, you know, who, you know, any history that people didn't know. Um, and then I would have like four or five shots, good shots of it that you could zoom into. And then I'd have like a, a handful of detailed close-ups so you could read the kind of stuff that you notice. So, you know, you, you know the amount of times you'll look at your watch to, to read the time and then you don't read it because you're distracted by, I do like those hands or look at the way that button sticks out. You know, that I, so I, I, basically it was like a collector experience. But what that gave me was every time I did one of those watches, I had a file in my pictures and in the file were all the shots I'd taken the ones I'd prepared for the internet, you know, you know, clean them up or, you know, just made them bigger or whatever. And then a, a Word document with 500 words. Well, I sold like 500 watches. So I had 
500 funds that were all kind of set up waiting to go. Um, so I always had it in my back of my mind that um, I would do some kind of buck. Um, and I spoke to Beth Dewar, who's uh, or Dower, who's an American-German watch journalist. You know her, Beth? I don't. No, okay. Well, she's like on the grand jury, juries at like Basel and, you know, like she's she's the real deal. Like she really yeah. knows. And uh, I spoke to her and I said, I want to get a book. I, I want to kind of put a book together. And she suggested uh, I speak to Schiffer. And they said, you know, oh, we do. To be honest, it was pretty difficult with Schiffer to, to, to you know, I think they were going through a bit of a transition at the time. Um and so the book got cut down to 120. Um, and I was going to do like 10 books of 50 watches. That was the idea. It was going to be like, a, so not like a really expensive book, but a series of like slim books that have all the military chronographs in, all the pilot watches, all the dive watches, you know what I mean? And they just, and they would, and the thing is, it wasn't like I was borrowing watches from people and taking photographs of them. I'd serviced every one of these watches. So I, I could put collector notes in like, oh, by the way, look, everyone says you can't get the crystal for this watch, but actually you can. And using the, you know, you never get the original one because this watch was expensive, you know, like the real stuff. Um, yeah. and that was going to be the original idea, but um, it just ended up being 120 watches. Um, and they were kind of like, I, uh, a friend of mine described them as the, as the, the thrillers, not the killers. So, but I've still got like maybe three, three fifty. I've probably got another solid book of two, two eighty, three hundred watches that are all collectible and all good and you know, great, well worth buying and all that kind of stuff. That would, I, that's certainly something I would buy. And again, for people who've never seen this book, I mean, I think the way I would describe this is it's kind of an anthology of a lot of these watches that you've collected and moved on. But the value to it for me is um, it's a great reference for a lot, frankly, a lot of cool things that we don't necessarily know about or that maybe we've seen once or twice. Like I'm looking at this, um, a, a Baylor Bicompax chronograph with the date at 12, yeah. it's kind of this cushion case. And it's just super, super cool. And I maybe saw that once before years ago, maybe once, and I've long since forgotten about it. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, so many people are chasing the usual suspects in vintage. It's a great kind of an inspirational well to go if you want to try to, in my opinion, you know, dabble in getting, you know, some vintage watches under your belt. Not necessarily, although certainly some of these are quite expensive, I'm sure, but not necessarily, you know, paying a fortune, but knowing what, um, you know, what a good one can look like and, yeah. you know, some of the brands and models and references that not everybody's looking for. And if you, if you know what that is, it's a great like starting point on eBay or on some of these other forum sites. And, you know, that, I, that to me, that seems to be the real value to kind of remind people how much great stuff is out there. That is not the usual old Rolex, um, you know, old Speedmaster, yeah, uh, you know, um, you know, vintage Hoyer. There's well, there's tons of other stuff. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, I mean, I'm kind of 
I've always been quite interested in design. And so, and the thing about when you're kind of, there were no rules to kind of marketing your own stuff. So I would just go, well, I think this goes really well with this strap. I remember, I remember I had some straps, some perforated racing straps made. And I had like these brown ones that looked like they'd come out of like a, you know, like a Lancia, like an Italian leather seat detail from the 60s. And I put them on a Hoyer Bund, you know, that's a, which is a large uh, Hoyer chronograph that always comes on like a three-piece pilot strap. And I showed it to the military watch club. I used to do this all the time. I'd go on to a forum that I that they knew me, but I didn't spend it. And I'd go, what do you think of this? And I would get shot to pieces. And, and they were like, no, can't put it on a brown strap. It's got to be on a black strap. Um, I mean, it's on the front cover of that book in a brown strap. The, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the, the Hoyer Bund. Yeah, well, um, that was just um, like, because every single military collector was like, no, it comes on a black three-piece cuff strap. You can't put it on anything else. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. And and no one did, in those days, no one did that. You know, they were like, you can't put it on a mesh strap. It didn't come on a mesh strap. They were like, the, hair, the head's exploding because, you know. That's you not know, period correct. Well, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. And yeah. to me, that looks like because i know exactly what you mean i'm i'm accustomed to seeing pictures like period right. photos of the kind of the, the high gloss um i don't know if it's like a buffalo leather or what yeah, but it's yeah. black it's it, looks serious, thousand, it looks a thousand times better in brown and i would never yeah. look a black uh, brown. well no i just i mean I, I didn't even it didn't really occur to me because i'd be sitting in my office and i had you know because i was essentially a dealer um i'd have all these straps so i'd go well let's put it on this one so it looks like because i was thinking of it photographically and it was just funny. I'd just say, what do you think? And people would just hit the roof. Oh, my God. You know, when I customized, um, you know, the egg case, Mark, uh, Speedmaster Mark II with the, they call it with the exotic dial. It's got loads of colors, color on the dial. When That's I, also when on I, the cover, I think. Sorry? I, That's that on the cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they then remade it because it wasn't just me who did those watches. Um, I remember showing that on one of the Amiga forums, saying, what do you think of this? And I had all these guys going, that's sacrilege. You've ruined that vintage watch. And like these watches were routine, routinely ruined because they were kind of egg shaped and they were star brush finished. If somebody, it was really worn over time, people would just get a piece of wet and dry sandpaper and sand it. And when they sanded it, they took the edges off it so it wrecked the case. So I would buy them and they were like destroyed. Now, you could send them to Amiga and spend, I don't think they, you could even get them done at then. Or you could send them to, I think I used to send them to Jack Alexon, an international watch in the States. He used to yeah. like, he used to, he, he'd do like good rest- restorations. He basically used to customize gun parts, I think. And he would do this, B blast them, do this great matte finish on them, and I'd get New Star Thousand Hands. And I put it, and it was just, and I completely revived this watch. It was no good before. And yet when I showed it, a number of these kind of Amiga guys hit the roof because they were like, you, I'm like, they made a million of these watches. It's not rare. Just because you haven't seen that many sitting in your back bedroom on your computer. They made 1.3 million versions of this watch. There's a lot of them. And then what then happened was some of the very old school collectors went, well, actually, I'm doing one. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Chuck Maddox? Don't tell anyone. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Chuck Maddox? He was 
Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck, I, on a post I did with, I did a, a little video of this black watch that's on that book with painted black by the Stones. You know, like, uh, I see a red door and I want to paint it black, right? And I put it on the Amiga Forum, and it was just like fireworks going off. And then Chuck comes on and goes, well, I think it looks all right. In fact, here's mine. And he had one in pieces that he'd had PVD coated. And then another guy did. And then it was like, oh, my God. And I was like, it was like I'd kicked open somebody's front door, shouted something and run off. You know, it was kind of funny. But the way I the, the way I went with the watches, like you say, with the book, with it all being like not the usual suspects is because I realized early on that they all use the same movements. There's only like 50 movements. And of them, yeah. it's like there, there's a load of them that are variations of the same movement. But we yeah, exactly. That's an eye opener for a lot of people. And there's really, <laughs> you know, as you say, not not a yes, ton of things out there. Don't tell anyone. I mean, that Baylor watch that's in that book, which is the, it's essentially a uh, a uh, oh, what was that? What's the Hoya one? And Hoya Camaro, right? Well. Yeah. If you're a dealer selling a Hoya Camaro, you don't want to let anyone know that actually there's quite a number of watches use that case. Oh, and they also use that movement. Oh, and they also use that case style. So is it really a Hoya? Or is it a Baylor? Or is it a Jules Jorgensen? Do you know what I mean? Like they exactly. were, And when I started showing these watches, I got a little bit of heat about that. Like, you know, what, are you, and what, what was said? Um, well, poor man's Hoyer is what, and now you have like poor man's Seiko and poor man's, you know, Rolex. And, but the first, the first thing was poor, the first uh, use of that term was poor man's Hoyer because there's a lot of them because Hoyer made watches for loads of different people as well. And not under their own name. Right. I mean, uh, I thinking of an example and I'm not sure if it was Hoyer that did it, but you know, there's, um, Oh, come on. It's a the big uh, clothing retailer, Abercrombie & Fitch. I want to say that there were Sears branded watches, any any number of other things out yeah, there. Yeah, they did and, that as well. Yeah, they, yeah, did, them they, Sears, they did them Yeah, they did them for uh, Abercrombie & Fitch. I had one from a, a real nice one that I should – I mean, the stuff – I mean, I, I'm talking to you on this podcast of this, you know, I was – relatively early with this kind of indie stuff. I mean, there were guys who were much earlier than me who, you know, are still going as well, really. Um, but, you know, and I made that book and the book's really good and I'm going to do, I'm doing another one at the moment. That's going to be a real, like, a complete, like, Bible of everything you need to know um, about restoring these watches as well. <laughs> but I ended up selling them all. And so what's what's happened is that book's got like a million pounds worth of watches in it that I don't own anymore. And so it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty cool with the early with the vintage, but mm, not sure that uh, my collection stands up to what are in the book, really. Yeah, if, if well, as with anything, right? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. If we could only have known then what we know now about what was going to age and appreciate and be oh, yeah. super hot and in demand, you know, ten or twelve years later, what is your collection like now? Like, what are you collecting? Do you, um, are you big into it still? Well, I've got, um, I don't know, because I'm kind of sort of semi-business involved with it, and I kind of look at watches differently now as well. I mean, to a certain degree, I do look at them as being product. Um, and I, I, 
there was a big thing with when Instagram kicked off, they pushed the brand name so much. And there was like, then the knock on to various kind of like, um, uh, what are they called? Um, uh, blogs who were, you know, doing lots of articles about watches because it generates lots of traffic. That's how they made their money with advertising. Sure. Um, it kind of pushed so many of those watches very high. So, you know, I used to just quietly collect Universal Geneva chronographs that nobody knew about. And then all of a sudden, Universal Geneva chronographs are like 20 grand. So, yeah. What does yeah. A, uh, a Nina rent cost now? Yeah, I know. And, and also, and the, I mean, you know, I once bought, I, I used to buy watch parts from a, I don't know what he was. He was a dealer in Italy, in Rome, called Rosario who used to sell really rare watch parts on, on the internet, like value 71 clutch wheels. And I mean, real. So the early tri-compact manual wine chronograph that ended up being used by everybody, including Rolex and, but like the first version. And I was like, where's he, where's he got this stuff from? And I had a conversation with him and I bought just cause I couldn't believe it. Uh, 10 universal space compacts cases. New old stuff. Wow. Yeah. For thirty dollars each. <laughs> well yeah, you yeah. make a good he deal. had he had seventy of them. So you know when you see Universal Space you know that works, the Universal Space Compacts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well you know when you see them they're all perfect. Makes you wonder. You make just a little bit, just about, I mean, I'm all for, see, my thing is they're cars. They should, they've got, they're, they're built with parts that they can be, it breaks, you buy another one, you screw it on, off you go. That's my, you know, they should be restorable. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So, so I don't have, I personally don't have a problem with it, <clears throat> you know, cause I think that's how it should be done. I mean, you know, the whole thing about, Seamaster 300s and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, a lot of those watches are kind of too expensive to buy. But, you know, but the, most of the watches I have now, I mean, these are kind of interesting. Because um, there's loads of really cool watches. And look at that one. That, now, this is a pocket watch with a, 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 a long stem and a crown, right? Black dial, Zenith. Um, and it's called a type, I think this one's called a type 30, uh, GS type 30 hour watch. And it's got, it's got like a ridiculously modern script, right? On the, um, on the numbers. Right? Yeah. The numbers are very reminiscent. I can't see through, you know, the, uh, the camera that it's a Zenith, but at the same time, the, the numbers look virtually identical to that sort of retro big and I'm, I'm using big, not in literal terms, but the, the large pilot watch that they did a few years ago. Okay, well, that, that large pilot is based on this. Yeah, it's, it's clearly, it's the same typeface or very similar. Yeah. Well, they, they made a wristwatch of this and they called it the special. And, and the modern one is based on that, but it's actually based on this. So when you used to get in a, a your biplane and you were in the, um, the Army Air Corps before it was the Air Force in Britain, if you ever seen inside something like a gypsy moth or one of these old planes, mm -hmm. they didn't. They had a dashboard, but they basically used to have a shelf 
with slots in and they would put their pocket watch in and it would slot in and then they could read it while they were flying. And the reason why the numbers are so big is obviously because it was getting shaken all over the place. And uh, this, this is like a real serious piece of aviation history. Now you, you did ask, you did ask me about, you know, what, what, you know, what, what do I think is like undervalued or, but these things, if you want something that is genuinely cool and old, you know, re, I mean, that's it. So like that watch that you're wearing now, this is what it started with. Yep. This is the first pilot watches and you know, you can get them. Then they're, they're not pricey. They've got, you know, they, they have copper dial. They've got, I think probably bronze or maybe copper hands and they're normally painted white. These have oxidized, but you know, it's the real thing that's available. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are British, British military watches are not very expensive. That's a SEMA from, I don't know, maybe, uh, late forties. Um, this is another one. It's not. It's yeah. Not I like that one. Yeah, that's well, one is cool. you can buy we can buy one of those with a Jaeger Jaeger movement. They're not very expensive. I mean, they're not really not. I've I've toyed with the idea of going down that particular rabbit hole because there is um, there's two or three places in here in Southern California. I won't say who they are because I don't want to blow them up. But um, you know where they've got an interesting selection of that stuff, and I haven't done it yet because I just don't feel like I've done my due diligence enough to know what I'm looking at all the time. Well, but you've got to get a watchmaker. You've got to get a watchmaker, and you just fair, run it all by my watchmaker, Mike did every single one of my watches. And I used to call him and say, I'm thinking of these. And he'd say things like, they were never sold in England, you know that. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, mm, there won't be any parts. And I was like, don't worry. I know this Rosario guy in Rome. <laughs> yeah. He's your man. So, yeah. Well, again, yeah, again, a watchmaker is really important. So yeah, I've got, I've kind of like, they're kind of, Watches. I've got a few Bramons because I still do a few bits and pieces with them. You know, I've got a so that's a Jag. Yeah, the Jaguar. Jag Mark II. Uh, it's this. This is the epitome of a watch that you look at and then have to keep looking at it because you admire it and then you can't read the time on it until you unless you really concentrate. Yeah, you've got to know what it is you're looking at visually. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, you can even read it's it. Because it's a watch counter from an E-Type Jag. It's not really a watch. And, yeah, but it's, it's so – I get uh, – and these two watches, of every single watch I've owned, of which I have – you know, as I've said to you, I've owned a ton. These two get more chat than anything else. People just go straight away, what's that? Um, here's another one of those guys. This was made for me. So this is a custom Bramon. But yep. if, you look at, if you look at it, it's it's got it's got something like I don't know six or seven percent PBD in the case. I don't know whether you can see. It looks like it's titanium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. They made that for me because they like, uh, like a. Uh, it almost um, to my eye, it looks like it's a blue color. 
Yeah, yeah, it's probably because I've got yellow light. Maybe if I click that one off. Yeah. Well, what you see is it's see. I don't know if you can see the edges, like on here. That it's worn, so the PVD is worn off the edges, and so what it does is it makes it look vintage. But it's not. Yeah, it does. In this light, I can see now that you're talking more about the case detail itself. Yeah, it's and not case the detail. Yeah, it's just the top case, so it's it's gray. But it's just like a little bit gray. And this is how they originally wanted to do them. So that what would happen is when you wore it, the edges would wear. And you'd just wear off that little dark. And so it would highlight. Um, um, I mean, this is years ago we had this conversation. But the, those two, uh, the two Bremont guys, they said they couldn't consistently get it. You know, because it had to. Obviously, they all had to be the same. And he didn't. You know, they were like, sometimes it'd come out like 15% and sometimes it'd come out like 7 Um, So we ended up not being able to do it as a, uh, as a um, you know, like a, a serial production. But they, they did one for me. So that's... Yeah, that's really cool looking. And for, to my eye, again, it looks like that is a black dial Alt 1P, like one of the yeah. early ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And you've got it on ISO frame. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, those yeah. are fun watches. Next time out, we, we don't have enough time to do that today, but next time I have a, a personal bugaboo about people who uh, irrationally hate that brand because yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I like I the brand. But... I have no idea why they do. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back, and you know, we'll we'll talk after I stop recording because I mean, there's we can name names, I'm sure, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow. Well, I tell you what, this is um, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I think there's definitely fodder for even more. I mean, you've got another book coming, uh, and I would love to talk to you more about Bremont. I would love to talk to you more about just kind of the next things that are out there undiscovered. I, you know, the pocket watches I think are a great um, a great starting point for people. Um, you know, is there anything you would want to tell the listeners like, Hey, where, where to find you? Do you want folks to follow you? Anything you want to plug? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that my book is like, if you want to be interested in watches, if you, you want to get interested in watches, just buy that book. It's not very expensive. I mean, I don't, it was more of a labor of love. It's not like I'm going to be a millionaire because of that book. But what's good about it is it just gives you the base, the base idea about what is important to look for in these watches. Like when you've got, when you, when, you know, you've got like a Hoyer watch that, I mean, some of them, some of them in that book are like 40 grand. And then it's, then there's like some not very well-known brand watch that is almost the same with the same movement. And you can buy them for like $500 if you can in the States. You know, I mean, so the book really will tell you a lot of stuff about how it works. You know, I've had friends of mine who are non-watch people buy it. And, you know, and they're like, okay, you're drawing me into a weird world that I didn't know was there. And it's very enjoyable. And the designs are cool, you know. Um, so that can help you. I mean, I put a lot of stuff on Instagram. Uh, I've got that, uh, that web forum where we kind of discuss stuff, but as you say, cause a lot of stuff, I, I kind of refuse to take everything from long format, this thing about putting it just on Facebook groups and all this kind of, you know, I've already, I've been doing it for like 15 years before any of this stuff came along. And then suddenly I'm like, Oh no, you've got to make it less detail, less personal and put it on social media. 
So I was kind of like, well, so yeah, so I'm ATG, on, ATG vintage watches on everything. So, okay. but yeah. Yeah, I definitely encourage people to go look, especially through sort of the back uh, back catalog of the old threads and topics at ATG Vintage. And frankly, I mean, it would be it would be great if a lot of people just sort of rediscovered that because I'm sure that's not a not an easy thing to maintain, you know, and to um, to kind of husband a website and you know keep it keep it going, especially in the era of you know these different social media platforms like Reddit and Instagram that have kind of I won't say displaced forums, but certainly have kind of shrunken the size of the role that Fora play. Um, but yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to a get the book. Again, the book is Chasing Time: Vintage Wristwatches for the Discerning Collector, and this is uh, from Alistair Gibbons. Al, it's been great talking to you. It's really cheap as well. I can't believe they made it so cheap. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, I think I've I've purchased probably a half a dozen copies of this book, and all in, I'm sure I've spent less than I spent for one copy of Engineering Time, the IWC. I, yeah, that's yeah, a good book. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's an a, an artwork in and of itself. But yeah, the point yeah. being, you know, there's a, a great deal of value in the book, and yeah, people should definitely follow you. So, Al, with that, I think we're going to go ahead. I'm going to hit the stop button here. It's sure. great talking to you, buddy. I appreciate you, you making agree. time across the time zones. Yeah, no, great talking to you. Thanks a lot. All right, cheers, mate. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.